more crypto stories in public health. I'm your host, Emily Dieter, and today I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Erica Chrome, who's the Chief Operating Officer at a place called SleepFit, and she's also a clinical psychologist. Welcome, thank you for joining us, Erica. Thank you for having me. So maybe you could start by explaining to people, giving us a bit of a walk through your career to date. You started in academia, you've had a transition. How did it all happen? Uh, I'm going to be fully honest here and say it's been an interesting journey. Uh, started life wanting to be a vet until oh, I, I did no no until I wanted until I did work experience and realised what I would have to do. Uh, so I knew I needed a new career. It's like you did work experience for you. Yeah, I know, I know. So it was actually uh, yeah, it was very eye opening. I would recommend it for everyone <laughs> before they sign up to their ideal job. So I knew I needed a new career. So I picked psychology because I thought there'd be no maths involved. Is that true? No. (laughs) University and quickly found out about statistics and then did eight solid years of statistics after that. So I I really actually loved psychology once I got settled in and went on to do a combined PhD in clinical masters. I think my idea was always being a clinical psychologist. So that would be seeing patients? That would be seeing patients. So a lot of kind of anxiety, depression, trauma. Um, In that process, I just found an amazing... uh, research supervisor who's actually a mentor at Franklin Women as well, Andrew Bailey, and just became so passionate about research and solving problems. So I think having had two children along the way during my training, uh, full-time clinical work wasn't super ideal, didn't have the flexibility I needed, so I really was looking for something that hit all the values, was really interesting and engaging, and then I think I was lucky enough to do some postdoc work again with Andrew Bailey on improving the quality of care that we provide in mental health. So it's something I was really passionate about. So I did about three years in the postdoctoral work and I think I just found that for me academia wasn't the best fit. I think Did I'm, you miss the clinical or I was still doing kind of one or two days of clinical okay. uh, and I, I still do it today because I think I, st- I still have that passion. But I think for me I found it hard to make the impact I wanted. So I jumped out and I, I did the big transition out into industry and then worked in a life insurer, developing some digital health programs and then transitioned across to sleep fit. So that's what I do now. Cool. So maybe let's delve into that a little bit. When you talk about not having the impact, what, what do you mean specifically in research? For me, I just found there was such a lag in information from what you would yeah. study and things that you'd find. Um, you know, a great example is... I wrote a paper with some colleagues around the cost-effectiveness of doing training as a psychologist. So if it takes, you know, hundreds of hours to learn a new therapy and you might use it once or twice, you kind of have to really challenge whether that's actually uh, a feasible thing to do and and exploring ideas around, you know, should psychologists specialise in everything, a bit like a GP, or or is it kind of more cost-effective to really focus in on one or two areas and know them really well and so I think just exploring ideas like that you can kind of see the gap of where the industry is and it's years away. So even though you've found those you've had those findings it's not necessarily having impact on the ground for people's practice. Yeah I get that. I, I like to see results from what I do. I find it challenging to kind of put ideas out there and and know that perhaps no one's yeah. Can I do anything with it for a very long time? Yeah, that is a challenge, research impact. And then what was it like deciding to leave? Like, you put a lot of effort into getting there. 
I think with my background in psychology, it was probably maybe easier than other people would find. I think for me, I know what's really important is working towards things that I'm passionate about and are consistent with my value system. So for me, a job is a job, um, provided it's letting me do the things that I love and contribute in the way I want to. For me, it wasn't a big kind of mental shift between academia and clinical. And That's awesome. I wish I could have that. <laughs> way too much emphasis on work. <laughs> And so I think one of the things that people might be interested in is that career transition and how you made it. I think I hear it a lot in research that people might be thinking about leaving, but they're not sure how. So what were some of the processes you went through to find other opportunities? It's very trite, but it's exactly what kind of everyone talks about, which is networking. So I was exploring ideas and looking on Seek and things like that. Um, one of the jobs was in the life insurer, and I mentioned it to someone uh, one of the professors here at Macquarie University and kind of said, oh, this is something I'm looking at. And he said, oh, well, it turns out we're doing an, uh, a centre of excellence bid with a different life insurer and I know the head of marketing there and how about, you know, I just flicking your resume and see what comes of it. Yeah. And it turns out they were actually hiring at the time. And, and what kind of work was it with a life insurer? Like, uh, that sounds like a very different type of work. How did your skill set fit with an outside organisation like that? Well, it didn't and it did. Okay. So I think it's... So if you had to ask me what I do in my job every day, the biggest thing I do is learn and solve problems. And I think for that it was very much learning and solving problems. So they were looking for someone with a mental health expertise, but they were also looking for someone who can kind of walk in and help manage projects, who could you know, think creatively, pick up different project management styles quite quickly or different uh, design principles and then run with it. So yeah, I think when I look at the job ads as they were in Seek, and I didn't see them till six months after I was in the job, it was really clear that had I seen it, I never would have applied. Yeah, and that's the other thing I hear. So how do we get around that? Like if someone is looking, how do people even start looking on Seek if they're not even sure with the job descriptions? No way around it. She's shaking her head, everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not very good at uh, the audio stuff. (laughs) Um, So I think I would keep an eye on Seek, but I'd give it 5 to 10% of my attention. Yeah, and then focus on talking. And if we look at the stats, that's about 5 to 10% of jobs actually get kind of advertised, and a lot of it is that internal promotion it is within networks. I think I'm on the other side now as an employer and looking to hire people And it's often really hard to connect with people that you want to as well. So I think I might have a job where I want someone to do, you know, these five weird and wonderfully amazing different things. And I know that that person probably exists outside in the world, but how do I reach them? And how do you write that as a job description? And how do you write it as a job description? What title do you give it? So I think it it is a lot of networks. And I think what most employers do is actually kind of go through their internal networks first, they'll advertise something internally, and they often actually pay good money to their staff if they find someone who, who fits the bill. Oh, does that happen in private yeah. industry? Yeah. So I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to say. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so there's often big bonuses if you can recommend someone for a job because it costs a lot of money to go through recruiters and post ads. So oh, so these word bonuses, they're all new to me from yeah. academia. Yeah. <laughs> So now you're working at Sleep Fit, yeah. you're the Chief Operating Officer. Yeah. How did that happen? So that was, again, networks. 
So one of the people... Sensing a theme. Yeah, <laughs> totally a theme, totally a theme. So one of the people I worked with there left to go join Sleep Fit. She was really passionate about sleep. Then I think a couple of months into the job, she was like, we need someone to do a project and, you know, you'd be perfect for it because you've got these kind of skills. And so she lured me across and then I've been there ever since. So what I'm hearing is, is I think really valuable is that because people talk about transferable skills a lot and everyone yeah. says, I don't know what they are. Yeah. But all of your roles have been really different. Yeah. So there have been some underlying skills like the project management. Yeah. What else do you think has been transferable when people talk about those? So I can I can give you direct feedback because I've gotten direct feedback <laughs> recently about why I'm good at my job. The thing that apparently is most valuable about me as an employee is I can say no nicely. And so I can, you know, that's a really great idea, but we'll get to it later or let's put that on the side or it's a really great idea and we're going to focus on this thing or wouldn't it be great if... So that's not just about being nicely, it's no. about knowing what's a priority and focusing Definitely. on that. Definitely. I've learned a lot from you. Yeah. yeah. So, And I think that, to be fair, when you're doing research, that's something, there's so many ideas that you can do, but at some point you have to start saying no. Yeah, so I think with a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so saying no is actually a really key skill. I think learning and problem solving is another really transferable skill. Research, I think, if I'm looking at the projects I'm doing now, none of them fit really squarely in anything I've been clinically trained in or kind of university trained in, but I've been able to read up, I've been able to figure out where those big knowledge gaps are, who to talk to if I get stuck. So, And so what, do, what does your company actually do at SleepFit? I will put a caveat in that I'm very passionate about this because I have sleep apnea, so I was so excited when I met <laughs> you. <laughs> so we design sleep programs kind of across the lifespan. So we've got uh, some really strong products in workplaces that are around workplace screening, behaviour change, sleep apnea and insomnia. And we're starting to develop programs for new parents that are going to be coming out soon. But I think I'm super passionate because in all my clinical training, I didn't really get the importance of sleep drummed into me at any point. And then now I'm kind of learning about how important sleep is. It's just... Why don't we do this? As someone all who the time. Did, yeah. <laughs> as someone who didn't sleep properly, I only realised two years that I had sleep apnea yeah. and having my machine now, it's not attractive people, yeah. but it's changed my life. Uh, the difference of having a good night's sleep is just life changing. So I think it's really amazing work because yeah. people don't even realise how important it is. Yeah, and I think from from a mental health point of view, I think I just kind of feel aghast that it wasn't something that I was on top of with anxiety with depression because it's essential for that emotional regulation and so what does a day look like for you now that you're in a very different role is every day completely different every day is completely different yeah it could be anything from sorting out the accounting system to product design to doing kind of stakeholder meetings it could be you know putting in ethics applications we still do stuff like that. that yeah with our university partners so it really is really varied (laughs) and are you happy that you made the change what are some of the benefits now that you're on the other side it's more consistent with who I am so it's I can get my hands dirty I can see results quickly I can think one of the things that frustrated me was having done the work in academia and then spending weeks or months kind of revising minutiae in manuscripts to get them published. I think for me now it's actually, it's about getting results in the real world as opposed to getting sign off that something's good enough. 
And so is that time, is much more timely in your world now? It's a lot more timely, but it's also a lot more team-based. So I think one thing that I like about where I am now is that what matters is how the team is working, how the organisation's working, how the business is working, how happy customers are, which is quite different to academia, which is kind of how successful I look on paper and how much grant money I've got or how many publications. So I think that that's, that's a lot more consistent with who I am. I like to work behind the scenes to make things happen. I feel like you're getting results now, it sounds like. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Very satisfying. And so one of the other things we talked about, we've had a long chat before yeah. this interview, covered a lot of ground. We wanted to talk about mistakes and yeah. learning from them. Yeah. Would you like to touch on that and how that's impacted your work and life? Yeah. So I think that one thing that we were talking about before was that it's just out I was just going to say out there, but we can probably talk, stop talking about them as out there. It's kind of university jobs. But I think that I've become a lot more comfortable with the idea of failure and mistakes and getting things wrong, I think. How did you get there? Was it just because over time or did I you think, just work yeah, on it? I, some of it was time. Some of it was kind of really, as I read more and more about digital development and innovation and entrepreneurship to kind of get up to speed with with what I needed for my role, there was just a whole different language around failure and mistakes and how important it is to start making mistakes. And it's, you know, get things out. You know, if you're not embarrassed at your first attempt, then you've waited too long. Really? Yeah. Oh my God, it's so different. Test and learn, which means basically, um, I felt in academia it was very much your work was tied in with who you were. Whereas my real world right now is the idea that it's never going to be perfect first go, but until you put it in front of people, you never get the data that you need to fix it. It's very freeing and very liberating to kind of say, I think it's going to work in this way, but I won't know until someone's got it in their hands. And if it works in the way I intended, great. But if it doesn't work in the way I intended, well, that's a great opportunity to figure out how to make it better or do it differently. Uh do you have any kind of lessons that you've learned so far that you think you might have done differently or any sort of tips that, you know, someone's listening and they either want to work in research, they want to transition that you think would be useful? Tips for life? I think just kind of give it a go. <laughs> like, and I think try things and then learn from them. So if, it, if you try something and it doesn't go well, use that as an opportunity to figure out what you could do better, do differently. I think... The, there's a lot of, um, I don't know, concern that we might do things wrong the first time around. You know, there's stupid mistakes in life. Like if I know you're allergic to peanuts and I give you a peanut butter sandwich, like that's a stupid mistake. Whereas if I kind of don't know anything about you, I could hold everything back just in case. Yeah. Or I could put it out there and see how it goes and, and then I can learn from that. Yeah. And I'd probably tell you that I was yeah. allergic to peanuts. <laughs> you know, so... Well, if you didn't, that would be a stupid mistake on your behalf. And this is something we've talked about, but I'm just curious because of what we were talking about earlier. You're very busy, like you've got a job, plus you're still doing clinical work, you have a family. How does all that work-life balance fit in? Is there work-life balance? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that fantasy work-life balance is fantasy. I think the idea that you can be, you know, great at everything you do just sets you up for disappointment I think it's about being really mindful about what your choices are and where you make them and I think I think someone described it as a juggle which means that there's always balls up in the air 
So there's always areas where you're getting you're giving less attention, you're giving less focus, and I think it's about making sure that you're feeling happy with the conscious choices you're making about where you're spending your time. So I think when when I'm home with my kids, I'm present. When I'm working, I'm present. When I'm doing my clinical work, I'm present. I don't tend to watch too much TV. <laughs> I, think oh, that's I love the, Netflix. You know, <laughs> I think, you know, I prioritise my Netflix, so I do that while I'm, like, washing the dishes or something like that, so I can kind of get that yeah. enjoyment in all the same. But, yeah, I think the key for me is loving what I do and doing what I love. Yeah, that very much does come across yeah. when anyone meets you. Yeah. Really <laughs> comes across here. What are some of the biggest challenges you've faced? Was there one that really stands out, something you've overcome? Tricky one. Life. No. <laughs> I don't know. So I think, I don't know if there's a huge challenge that has kind of stopped me. I think yeah. there are lots of tough decisions I've had to make. There's a lot of stuff that didn't turn out the way I expected or the way I wanted. But I I wouldn't call it, yeah. Yeah, I think that's about yeah. resilience and that mindset yeah. of keep going forward. Someone told me that yeah. I was really excited about this grant idea and I talked to a senior person about it. They were like that's not going to get funded. Yeah. And I didn't go out thinking that's terrible because they gave me further yeah. feedback. Yeah. And I went out thinking that's good feedback. Now I can go away and work on this yeah. more. Yeah. So I think that's maybe what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And I think that a lot of the things that if you'd asked me in that time, I would have gone, this is the worst challenge. Yeah. And, you know, I'm never going to be able to get through this. But I think how I handled it has helped me kind of grow and develop confidence to do tricky things. I think... Like looking back, there's nothing super. Nothing you do differently. It's all nothing out. I do differently. Yeah. And what are you most proud of to date? Is there one standout thing? A lot of people tell me that I'm very future focused, so I don't tend to look back on things that I've done. I think if I have to really look at things I'm proud of because they kind of took work and focus, they'll probably be finishing my combined PhD in clinical masters with two babies yeah. and I got a VC commendation for that so stop I think, it that's amazing yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> took yourself looking, looking back you know it's something that I am proud of but I tend to get excited about what's ahead so that's amazing though you, talk, you don't talk yourself up <laughs> enough um, is there anything on your cheat sheet that we haven't covered that you'd like to talk about um, I think just uh, knowing that kind of we talk a lot about the Franklin women stuff and that they're talking about imposter syndrome and perfectionism I think being outside academia has actually been really good for me in that realm as well. I think if I was still in that really highly competitive environment, I think I probably would have a lot more of an imposter syndrome or kind of be a bit more perfectionistic in how I approach things. And, I, and I'd guess that my work would actually be suffering for it. And I think that there's a lot that we can do in that academic space about bringing that entrepreneurial mindset into work that people do every day and kind of instead of looking at getting things perfect or polished or it's actually getting things so they're valuable and they're needed yeah. and they're you know that they're moving knowledge forward so I think it's actually really hard you know you go through school all the way you get you can work really hard you can get right answers and then you hit research and the whole point of research is you have no idea what you don't know and um, you developing new knowledge every day and unless you're actually willing to put yourself out there and fail and to make mistakes and to you know potentially look a bit silly 
then you're never actually going to know anything that isn't what everyone else already knows. You're never going to develop that new knowledge. Yeah, I think we've got a bit of ways to go yet for <laughs> working like that in research. True. Yeah. I will say even just having these conversations has really helped my imposter syndrome. Going around talking to different people in the field, almost everyone yeah. has it. It just has really normalised it for me. Yeah. So just knowing that everyone has it kind of makes me feel better about it. And I don't know, it takes away some of the power. Yeah, and I think it's about you can really hold yourself to a high bar without being a perfectionism and it's that healthy pursuit of excellence where you can see yourself differently to your job. So I'm, you know, a daughter, I'm a mum, I'm a sister, I'm a friend, I'm an aunt and I can do work that's sometimes great, I could do work that really misses the mark and I'm still worth the same amount as a person, I'm still passionate, I still care. And I think it's about being able to separate yourself from the work you produce. And I think that lets you take that criticism, take that feedback constructively, instead of seeing it as kind of a a confirmation that you don't know what you're doing and everyone's going to find out. Yeah, no, that's really healthy, such a healthy separation. I'm going to aspire to it from now on. It doesn't always work perfectly. There are days when it kind of comes a bit closer and, yeah. And my final question is really, do you have a favourite book or movie or something that's really inspired you or changed the way you thought about the world? There's loads. You can you detect can a theme. I'm not, I'm not good at the, 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 the best of, the worst of. Everything's kind of lumped together with me. I think... Anything recent that stands out? Anything recent? <laughs> Even then, it's quite... Um, I wish I had more time to read more widely, but I think one thing that really I come back to quite a lot is um, Alain de Botton's kind of philosophy, psychology. I don't know her. Is that a famous psychologist? I think he's a philosopher. So he's kind of founded the school of life and he writes really beautifully around addressing the tricky problems in life. So it's, you know, why do we compare ourselves to others and feel... Oh, that sounds perfect. Yeah. So he does status anxiety. He's done a great book on marriage and relationships recently and I think it's it's just really um, quite profound and thought-provoking and kind of an antidote to everyday life and Hollywood. So it's kind of, yeah, it's really informed. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I'll definitely put that on my list. Yeah. I need life help. Yeah. Yeah, no, look, you can get the condensed versions on the School of Life website. Okay, cool. They're really helpful, yeah. All right, well, thank you so much uh, for your time today. I've really enjoyed it. You're welcome. And thank you, everyone, for listening.